everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Entrepreneurs Rx. Today, I've got the great pleasure of talking with Dr. Ryan Grant, who is a neurosurgeon, spine surgeon, um, and uh, entrepreneur. So, we're going to hear a lot about Nomad Health, which I know of, obviously, and then Vori Health. Ryan, welcome. Thank you for having me, sir. All right. So people are going to want to hear the story. So so back up to the early part about, you know, college medical school and what was your undergrad degree and where did you go? Sure. Yeah. Going all the way back, I would say um, just looking at my own career, I was always interested in medicine. There's some extended physicians in the uh, in, in the family, but not none in the immediate family. Um, so I remember even in elementary medical, medical, middle school, very interested in anatomy and got very interested in surgery, working with my hands. My dad was a small business owner, so got very involved in accounting and financial statements and negotiations. And so I eventually built my first company um, in, the, in the website IT space in my early teens. It still exists, never got big. And then I always wanted to go down the, the, the medical school route because I was always fascinated by medicine. So I ended up going to University of Michigan for uh, undergraduate, studied cell and molecular biology, biopsychology, uh, neuroscience, and then would stay on to do a master's in cell and molecular biology, was doing recordings on mice and rats of pleasure, pleasure pathways in the brain, electrophysiological recordings, so very hard basic science for a thesis, was doing grant writing. And then went on to medical school at uh, University of Pennsylvania and then got very interested um, in the entrepreneur world again, got involved in some medical device development, would go on to Yale to train in neurosurgery, and then would do complex and minimally invasive spine fellowship as well. Uh, would stay on at Yale for a little bit and then got recruited to Geisinger Medical Center, where I was their only scoliosis uh, neurosurgeon on their main campus. And then had also been recruited to come participate in their centers of excellence uh, spine surgery program and stayed at Geisinger for several years and then the pandemic hit. Wow, is that when you so 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 back up to so you were doing so you started early in entrepreneur. What kind of small business did your father own? Uh he's a court-appointed expert witness, so um, medical malpractice, both defense and plaintiff work. So he was a yeah. physician. No, he's an economist. So computing the damages of how much is the suit worth. And so got to do a lot of plaintiff and defense, got exposed to that, got exposed to the med mail side, got exposed to the insurance industry. Um, so, and then just the small business owner entrepreneurship. So that was a, definitely a huge influence on the trajectory I would go. And always the status quo is never good enough. You can always challenge it, Ryan. Wow, that was his that was his mantra. That's very cool. So in medical school, you were doing some startups startup as well? Yeah, I got involved in entrepreneur type work, medical device development, um, and then wanted to start a business again. Um, and so made a made a list of all sorts of things. One would eventually become Bori on 
There were other ones. There was insurance on the MedMail side that I had been involved in. Actually, wrote a long business plan about MedMail. Actually, started to put a team together and raise money. And I'm like, this is boring for me. I'm like, I don't have the passion to sustain this when the going gets tough. So I shelved it, and so I tabled that because part of if you're going to try to challenge the status quo, it's it's going to be tough. And if you don't have the passion to sustain it then why spend time on it? So tabled that one. Still a great plan. There were investors who wanted to put money into it, but it's, it was, wasn't for me. So it still exists um, and, and a piece of paper. And then went down medical device. Do I do more medical devices? I didn't really have the patience to go through like endless FDA animal trials. It's like 10-year process, sometimes a five-year, 510K. I don't have that type of personality. I want to move much faster. Than, that, than just pure medical device development of leading it. And then broke down to the things that always made me crazy as I was went into residency. It's like getting a job is painful. Credentialing seems like it's from 1920. The medical malpractice was still interested in that. So put together a plan of how do you disrupt medical malpractice, credentialing, licensing, and then that would eventually become into the fastest way to get into that market. If you're going to break it down, would be try to disrupt staffing. Um, and so myself and one of the um, other physicians at Yale came together to put a business plan together. We debated for a while, which of us is going to leave practice to run this? Because you can't, you're not going to be a startup CEO and do it really well if you're also practicing medicine quite a bit, quite often. You can maybe be the chief medical officer part time in the beginning. Neither of us were ready to leave practice, so that changed that. If you need to bring on a founding CEO, that would eventually become Nomad Health, which is one of the largest uh, healthcare staffing companies in the United States now. Um, Are you still involved in Nomad, or did you sell it? No, it's, it's it's still private. I'm still still on the board, but um, otherwise not not involved anymore. That allows me to do uh, the new startup full time. I wanted to uh, I wanted to practice for a little bit, um, and so after all that training, so I did practice for a few years to at least scratch that itch. I think that helps solidify the thesis for me of what Vori would be. In fact, after working on the front lines for several years, you're like. The system's like beyond out of control. So we'll take musculoskeletal, spine, orthopedics. Up to 50% of the spine surgeries have been deemed inappropriate or unnecessary. That hasn't gotten better in decades. Unnecessary knee replacements, depending on who you read, hovers around 25%. Unnecessary hip replacements hovers around 10 to 15%. And there's been articles in prominent academic journals like The Lancet or Pain, even recently in the last two years. It will go across most people with back pain, literally, quote, get the wrong care across the planet. Is that acceptable? It's still the top cause of global disability, low back pain. One of the top spends is it's the top spend for most of the self-insured employers. Oncology looks like it's pulling forward right now, but it's probably because elective surgery was unpaused. So it's the top one or two. And as you audit the evidence, it becomes more and more fascinating. And so there's lots of things the public doesn't know. Average primary care provider is not trained in the sector. And some statistics would be up to 60% misdiagnosis rate. So should the PCP be the backbone for back, neck, hip, or knee? You can argue the pros or cons, but they tend not to be that educated in it. Now I'll pick on people like me. I'll pick on the spine neurosurgeons and the orthopedic surgeons. I look at 
my went to Yale and Penn and see it like CV looks great for spine surgery. How much non-operative conservative spine training did I really get? About none. The surgeons have a huge education gap in the non-operative arm. And most people don't think about it. So the analogy would be if I sent you to the heart surgeon tomorrow because you have chest pain right now. To most people, that seems a little bit bizarre. Like, why wouldn't I go to the cardiologist? Or So who's the corollary to the cardiologist in this sector is physical medicine rehabilitation, also known as physiatry. But people tend to confuse them with psychiatry, so they like to go by physical medicine rehabilitation or non-operative sports medicine. The problem is if you ask the average primary care provider, never heard of physical medicine rehabilitation. And so there's this, this gap on both sides. So then in the middle lies physical therapy, which is necessary, but insufficient on its own to get people better. So there's a great article in New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, and there's, the more, there's a more recent update. If you want to do value-based care really, really, really well, you must practice in integrated care teams, integrated practice units. What does that really mean? That means a specialty physician and a physical therapist and a coach navigator actually working together. Every musculoskeletal institute I've ever worked in in the real world, the chance a physician and a physical therapist talk to each other in the real world is usually about zero. It's, they're really food courts. So Starbucks and Sparrow Pizza sitting there in the airport looking at each other. They don't see customers together. So all these musculoskeletal institutes usually to share overhead. So I wanted to disrupt all that. And that's what I do full time. Wow. But you, you said a little bit ago that the, the Vori was something you thought of. Was that back in medical school? Or yeah, residence? I, I, I go back to some of my old documents about where this started to come from of, of some of my writings. I, I, I keep I, I keep a notebook and still and still write. Um, I would keep something on me. As you went through your rotations, most people for the back pain surgery didn't get better, or 50%. There, there, there was too many people who didn't seem to get better from surgery. And you're like, well, it's not like 1% or 2% or 10 There's too many people not getting better, and we keep doing this every single day. I was still fascinated by the subject, so I still went in and trained in it. And then as you start to dive deeper, it became clearer and clearer the education gaps of the things I wasn't taught. So I went and audited like, what's the pain psychology literature say? Orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, physical medicine rehabilitation, acupuncture. Like what is the, what is the state of human understanding of this field? Mindfulness, all, all generative medicine, stem cells. Like what is the state of affairs? And put together a big white paper of, here is the current collective knowledge. Here's randomized control trials. Here's what we don't know. And here's putting your best thing about, you know, I didn't learn like 95% of this. <laughs> so, and because um, I learned how to operate. Um, I didn't learn how to really take care of a patient if they weren't in the operating room, like not operatively that well. I learned how to operate safely, pick patients, do it safely, get them better, and then you're done. And so, as you watch how the care models are done, the care model, I'm thoroughly convinced in the musculoskeletal orthopedic sector is broken. It's the care model that's wrong. And no one's really taking the time to overhaul it. And so I shut my practice down during the pandemic to try to work on overhauling it. 
Wow, and here you are. And here we are. So when did when did Voice start? Was that during the during the pandemic? Is that when you incorporated it? Yeah, we we closed our seed round um, late summer 2020. So we're still we're still only only about two, just over two years old. Very cool. So give me a sense, and I I, I know because you and I have had some past interactions, so I know about Vori, but, but give everybody a sense of exactly what Vori is because it's it's very compelling. Yeah, so using all that thing of unnecessary surgery, top cause of global disability, um, what do we really need to do to practice well? So first was, the surgeons, in my opinion, and I think the evidence supports it, but the surgeons who might be listening to this might disagree, but here we are, is the surgeons are not the right provider to triage. Like the heart, the, the heart surgeon shouldn't be triaging chest pain. Like that makes no sense. And so first use the, the right physician specialist because the primary care provider is not always educated in it. They might be able to take care of some of it, but when they escalate it, make sure they get to the right specialist, which is physical medicine rehabilitation. Now, the physician specialist drives some value on their own. The physical therapist also drives some value on their own. In traditional care, would be PT or ortho. That's what people know. But it's very clear if you want to become value-based care, you have to be a care team. So that physical medicine doctor and that physical therapist and a health coach navigator have to actually see patients and work together. Not just be handoffs where they just, it's a, a bunch of silos, but actually work together, render a diagnosis together, make a plan together, be a team. So we're a virtual first offering that can practice medicine in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. On your first visit, you would see a physical medicine doc, a physical therapist, health coach navigator. We do a lot of shared decision making. So Nancy comes in with 10 out of 10 back pain. It doesn't matter if it's acute, subacute, chronic, failed back surgery. We'll take care of. We don't exclude. We'll take care of anything. And you do a biopsychosocial, spiritual, motivational interview, which is evidence based. And you find you need to find from the individual what's most important to them. There's always something more important than pain. What if it's a pain issue? What are they missing in their life that they used to have that used to bring them joy? And you find from Nancy. The best thing that gives her joy every week is walking her kid, Tommy, to school. So her care, but she feels she can't because her back hurts too much. So her care plan is literally walking with Tommy. We then build an evidence-based back pain care plan around her with the goal to get back to walking with Tommy. We'll do something called a red flag screen in that first visit. Are we sure you don't have cancer? Are we sure you don't have a fracture? Are you going paralyzed? Things that are really scary that we would escalate up. So make sure that we're not going to hurt anybody. If it's just pain, not to minimize how uncomfortable someone could be, you don't, you're not supposed to image in the first several months. And then take people through that personalized regimen. And then we teach people a lot of things. If you don't teach people where pain comes from, they forever look. Uh, average person doesn't know that you don't need imaging. Average person doesn't know if you're over 30, we're going to find arthritis in every joint. That's just called being human. If you've got one wrinkle and one gray hair, guess what? You got arthritis. Doesn't mean we need to do anything about it. Because um, people get these imaging reports, L45 stenosis, severe, sounds terrible. And I'm like, that that person might be running marathons still. It's, 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 it's out of context without knowing more information. And 85% of people 
will get better through a non-operative conservative plan like this. The people who don't quite reach their entire goal, we do a lot of shared decision-making because most surgery for back, neck, hip, or knee, or shoulder, really, if you audit the evidence, belongs in the quality of life operation. And what I mean by that is they belong in the facelift category. Nobody needs a facelift. Facelift surgery is a quality of life operation. If your wrinkles bother you enough as you age, you escalate to injections, and you can escalate to evidence-based best practice facelift procedures. You don't need to do anything if it's just pain. The person doesn't incur harm if it's just pain. So really understanding from the individual, are you bad enough to be cut open? What is the risk that this gets you better? And just making sure people really know their options because the medical community tends to talk too much about Ma'am, you need this. Well, that might be true. Is it an option or is it need? And we find um, that our surgical referral rate is about 3%. So it's not zero, but it's, 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 um, but then we get people to great surgeons when that makes sense. So not anti surgery, anti inappropriate surgery. These are people's loved ones. And we want to make sure that people have their options and exhaust their non operative options first. And so how do people get connected? How do patients get connected with Vori? A variety of ways. They, they sometimes find us in the wild on Google. We get primary care provider referrals. We get first uh, uh, referrals even from surgeons who like, oh, I don't know what to do with this person, or can you help me optimize this person who does meet criteria for surgery? Um, we get uh, people through the benefits portal from a, a self-insured employer or through health plans as well. So a variety of different mechanisms. And then, and really interesting. So, what has been the what has been the biggest surprise for you in this? Because it's you know your description of it. So it does more than back. It also does basically anything musculoskeletal. It, it can deal with correct. Yeah, back, neck, hip, knee, hand, foot, carpal tunnel, tennis elbow, sprain, strains, failed back surgery. So what's been most surprising is I'll, I'll take you back pre-pandemic. I was originally it was the same care model. So integrated, a true integrated care team, same, same people I just described, but we were raising money to build clinics and then the pan, and then do tech wraparound. Um, but then the pandemic hit, not, no one's coming to new real estate. So moved all the money to virtual. What's been surprising is the thesis hasn't changed. So we still park some of our own clinicians inside of some primary care provider offices. We have a growing network of in-person care. So we really believe in true hybrid care. What's been surprising, I think, how much further you can take you can take virtual than I had originally thought. Like the utilization on the Medicare arm, like I was like, like when I was running the original of oh, the Medicare arm, probably not gonna use it very much. This is really gonna be, and I was being ageist in my original thesis and Medicare arm, some of that's forced because of the pandemic or COVID is, significant utilizers of it for those who are more tech savvy than you think. Um, you can do almost the entire exam. It make, makes you make yourself be more creative. So you can look for something called myelopathy, which is spinal cord compression, having somebody pick up a pen and see what they can do, twirl it around. You can set people stand on their toes. You can look at their gates. It makes it more interactive. And when you audit some patients, they actually sometimes like the exam better because they had they had to do first as just a physician or somebody touching them had to do more um we know that virtual doesn't do it for everybody so um and so you maximize as far as you can go and so i think the biggest surprise um besides that 
and there's a great article in McKinsey from February of this year, who's the biggest resistance towards the adoption of virtual care in the medical community? Yeah, physicians. Not, no, not the patients. The, it's the physicians. Yeah, totally. Right. It's the providers. So the so it's not the patients. McKinsey has a great article for those who want to read about it from, from February or March. And yet, and in the and in the musculoskeletal world, so if you look at physician, surgeon, who's the biggest resistance to the adoption of virtual care in this in this realm? In-person physical therapy is the is the and so the adoption of technologies um, by the actual medical community is one of the biggest barriers, which I find fascinating. And it reminds me of like when banking or shopping went online. Like I remember when banking went on. Oh my God, you're going to bank online. They're going to take your money. It's unsecure. They're going to steal your identity. Blah blah blah. Now nobody talks about do you bank and bank or bank. It's just banking. And I find this 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 um, notion that people have to talk about hybrid care is a little bit. I find it a bit funny. Um, versus, or because most of the debate across the country right now is, vir- is you hear people talk it's virtual versus in person. I'm like, that's the in my opinion the wrong conversation. Virtual is integral. To, it's just care. And I'm like, anybody listening to like, how do you interact with your family or loved ones? You call them on the phone, you text them, you have a smartphone, then you fly and see them, or you see them at home at night. It's a mixture of in person and virtual modalities all day. Uh, care is no different, and so I think I think the people who are pushing that care should only be in person already always are ostriches with their head in the sand, and I think they'll they'll lose long term. And they're the same resistors you find when banking went online, shopping went online, education. Yeah, yeah. I you know in 2010 I did the virtual medicine business, and literally I use your exact same analogy. Look, you, you trust the banking. We got that far. What's the difference? And, you know, uh, you, you know, your friends call you and ask for medical advice. And I thought, God, if I can do it with my friends, I can do it with anybody, which was uh, at least for for me and D, that was a that was a start of the business. So it's funny, 10 years later, 12 years, we're still fighting that battle somewhat. Yeah. And, and no, and it's fascinating. The other thing I would say is I never really thought about it as a physician, because anybody who works in a hospital or has a medical license, whether a physician, physical therapist, nurse, almost nobody accesses the system like a normal civilian. Yeah. So how does everybody in the hospital access the system? They call their buddy down the hall. If they work in a doctor's office, they off the doctor, they walk up. No one's accessing the system, calling the phone tree, doing anything that you're supposed to, that everybody else does. And if you have a doctor in your family, they call you. Yeah, and uh, all the time. And so, what does the average person do who doesn't have access to that and doesn't work in healthcare? Like, what is their? How difficult is it for them to get an appointment? What does that look like? And I remember when I was um, still inside the academic centers and people working on care design, and, I, and we would be in this boardroom. Uh, I stopped the board. My none of us in this boardroom have ever accessed the system. In the, in, the, in the way that we're just trying to design it for, so it gets me back to like the Jeff Bezos quote, how well do you know your customers? Um, and are you really building for your customers? Or are you building for what you think your customers want? And you're really building for yourself and you didn't test it and you end up with a segue. I love that. 
I love that example. And the Steve Jobs absolutely went head over heels for the segue, but the product market fit was never there. But it's a very cool thing. Um, what has been, so one of the things you said, which is going to concern some folks, is that, you know, you had to make the decision with Nomad and then you made the decision with Vori. It's like, look, I can do one or the other, but I'm not going to do a, be a startup founder and CEO. I think a lot of physicians don't have that luxury. And so they're going to have to figure out a way to, and I was one of them, to weave the two together and still practice medicine while they're doing the next big thing. What, what What's your advice for them? Because you've done it the other way. You've, you've done it the all-in way, which takes a lot of balls, frankly. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. No, Nomad was, I wasn't mentally ready. I wanted to, I, I still like, I still wanted to practice. Didn't want to leave medicine um, yet. And so that's, so the advice was check your own ego. If you, like, if, if you feel like you're going to be 100% practicing and a full-time CEO, sure you never will get a big company and you'll never move the human race forward so i find the uh, a lot of people who, who i've talked to I, I find some of the very interesting is the amount of ego well i'm the founder i have to be the ceo and i'm going to practice full-time like well that's show, show me somebody who's really done that at scale as, as doing both now there's other ways around it. You can bring on a team. It means you have to dilute yourself. So it's checking your ego again and giving ownership to others because now it's a team base. It's about the mission. So I, I would I would say it's mission, then team, then self. And so if 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 your cross ranking is the opposite, it will be you will struggle as an entrepreneur. I don't think you'll be successful. And then I think I did try to do neurosurgery part-time for a little bit of Vori. So the cases that gave me the most joy were cancer cases, so spine tumors, big scoliosis cases, which is like the huge spine deformities with lots of screws and rods. If I'm moving to a part-time practice, those are much higher, higher risk cases. I did not find it was fair to the patient. If I'm not doing those cases every week, I should give those cases up. So moving into a part-time practice reduced myself to, for lack of a better word, more bread and butter surgery, which is what most of it is, a single level fusion, a lateral, what's something called an anterior cervical, a bunch of different cases that can be done either one night over today. Those are nice cases, but the ones that gave me the most joy were the ones that I tabled. So then neurosurgery was not as challenging for the thing, all, all the cases that gave me the most joy, I just gave up. And then the next thing was something else looking back that held me to making decisions was the, was debt. Like I had to take out all sorts of loans to pay for medical school and college and stuff. And so I determined I was like, I'm going to buy after training, I'm going to buy a cheaper house. I was still driving a high school car. I was trying to be very frugal, pay off your debts live half your salary like you'll later self will thank you so don't go live whatever your salary is don't don't leverage yourself to the max because you'll be in debt forever if you want more freedom of choice live below your means pay off your debts and you're thinking so i remember when i paid off so that's what i did 
So then I, pay, I paid off my debts. When the debts were paid off, decision-making became very different. There was not a financial motivator of, I need this salary to pay my medical school debt off. That was no longer part of the decision-making process. And so clarity of thought became much easier and became less scary when there wasn't a big debt bill coming again next month. And how are you going to pay that? Pay them off. That means you have to change your lifestyle and make sacrifices to do that. Yeah, that's so true. I literally have physicians, you know, I have this other business and physicians frequently call me and say, hey, can you, you know, can you advance me my salary? I'm out of money. And I'm always thinking you make 350, 500 a year. How are you out of money? I mean, I, I, I get the fact that everybody has debt or most people have debt, but, you know, come on, we can do better than that salary and money. Absolutely. Like 350 is for, for people listening to this, like the average American is like 50 grand, 60 grand, 70 grand. Uh, if you have that earning power as a physician, can you live on 150 for several years and take all the other money and pay your debts off? In, in five years, you can, if you make that, if you make that determination, that means you're going to have a smaller house. That means you're going to have an entry level car. But when, when you have all that off your life, life will be much less stressful. Yeah. You'll sleep better. So there was, so, you know, I would say what you did, I call, you know, burn the ship mentality. You know, you, you put your neurosurgery on hold and you go all in with Vori with Nomad, it was like, hey, I'm not, I can't do both and be successful. Okay, I'll be all in in medicine. In my assessment or my assumption at time was, boy, those people who burn the ships, they have a much better chance of success because, you know, is that a whole difference between the, the between the chicken and the pig and a ham and egg breakfast? The chicken's into it, but the ham's, the, the pig's committed. So I, I got introduced to this book called Originals by Adam Grant. And what they, what what he talked about in this book, he says, it turns out the people who hedge their bets, who continue their day job, so to speak, ends up having a better chance of success because they're less, they're less freaked out about this lack of salary. But I think with your perspective of lower, you know, live below your means, that might um, leverage that a little better or hedge against that a little better. So maybe that's why it was easier for you because you were yeah. living below your means. No, yeah, I would say that my decision-making when you have a huge debt load of hundreds of thousands of dollars, like I, I finance my own education through debt, like what, like most people do. And then no one's to pay it off except yourself, but I, I didn't want it over my head. And so just was live below the means to get it done. And I like Adam's quote. Um, I'm also biased because we're related um, um, in, in terms of, being original and thinking different and um, similar to that type of philosophy would be some of Jim Collins' work, like books like Good to Great, of having an unrelentless faith, unrelentless faith that you can figure out what to do, but also at the same time looking the brutal facts in the mirror of what reality is, of like things are going to take longer, it's going to take more capital than you think. You're going to think you're you're going to. Um, I don't know anybody who in a startup who doesn't have some type of imposter syndrome at some point. <laughs> like, like, am I crazy? Yep, yep, yes, you so are. True. 
And am I the right person to do this? I gave up all this, like I took an 80% pay cut and my family thinks I'm nuts. And like, yeah, you are nuts. But like Steve Jobs quotes, it's the, it's the crazy ones. Yeah. are crazy enough to make the leap who try to pull it off. Yeah. To think they can change the world. Well, as we wrap up, what, what, because like I said before, there's going to be a lot of physicians who are like, okay, this is badass. I want to head down this path. What advice would you have for physicians to, who are, who listen to this and want to start and they like, Hey, I want to be Ryan Grant. I want to start down this path. Um, Talk to people that you want to be like. So uh, like, if you wanted to be a surgeon, you would go talk to surgeons. If you wanted to be an astronaut, you'd go start talking to astronauts. Like, so I, I would say the worst advice that you can get, if you really want to be entrepreneurial is inside of a hospital. That's like, so that's like the status quo. That's where the status quo will live. And they're not bad people, but that's like trying to overhaul the DMV. Like, good luck. And so um, so I would say the worst advice to get if you really want to be innovative is likely inside of a health system. So it's likely it's not likely your colleagues, but maybe. So you have to and you have to listen to the, your own drum. So your chair. If you're in a formal academic system, is going to think you're nuts, like most likely, and are going to, and more, most likely, most academic systems, not all, will poo-poo you. So you're going to get a lot of criticism. But sometimes you know that you're on the right track, and be willing to not let the critics kill your dream or your idea. Get past that. It's growing a little bit of a thicker skin. You're like, all these people are going to tell me I'm an idiot. And you're going to hear that, and you're stupid. Can't do it. Uh, and go do it and go figure it out. Um, because the only person in control of your your own destiny is you. Amen. Well, Ryan, where can people learn more about you? Learn more about Vori Health. Uh Vori Health, you can go to our website, www.vorihealth.com, V-O-R-I. You can Google it. You can it's easy to find me on LinkedIn. Um, emails there. So don't be a stranger. Always happy to connect um, when there's time. Excellent. Well, I'll have everything in the show notes. And if physicians, and I'm, as you were talking, I'm thinking of people I know that I'm going to refer to you. And I have somebody right out of the gate with fail back. Um, What's the easiest way to refer patients to Vori Health as your physician, just online? Yeah, they can go to the website. There's a 1-800 number there. Um, People can refer directly to us through an EMR. So there's a variety of different ways. We accept most insurances. And um, if if, if we don't, there's also pretty reasonable uh, cash rates. Great. And you said you've already raised your series A. Very yeah. good. What's the next, what's the next phase? Series B, obviously, but when are you gonna when are you gonna do it? Yeah, we're looking at like we're just looking at the macro economy and it's like what's going on and inflation and stuff. Um probably probably not raised till 24. Yeah. Um, but we'll just sort of watch, watch what the watch what's happening in the industry. Like I, I would say. As you look at valuations across the board, there's um, lots of things have reset and um, there's been lots of corrections and just what is the thing? This is that new world is here to stay. Um, What happens with CMS in terms of telemedicine regulations? All states recognize telehealth now. So the practice of medicine has been protected, but that's not all the insurers. So like. Like the Blue Crosses of the world have lifted the regulations that you can credential providers across state lines on a virtual side. Other health plans have moved back to like 1920, horse and buggy of uh, 
we only credential in-person people here and are ignoring telehealth. So, um, so I think the health plans who are following the, where the technology is moving will beat out the health plans who are going back to horse and bucket. Yeah, so true. Well, thanks. This has been amazing. I really appreciate the time and uh, the insight. You have very, you have very sage wisdom. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeldmd.com. Thanks for listening.